promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. This fall, we're in a series called The Gospel of Jesus. We believe the gospel presents a compelling case for what Jesus' early followers believed. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to redeem His creation and make all things new. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining the meaning and purpose of life and our part in it. How did Jesus view wealth, power, and prestige? How do you view those three things? Hey everybody, my name is Scott Schimmel. It is so good to be back at La Jolla Community Church. I love it when Steve's out of town because that means I get to come back. And the irony this time is that Steve invited me to come talk about a passage that's uh, typically a little bit dangerous to talk about, especially in a community like La Jolla, because he invited me to come back and talk about wealth and the dangers of wealth (laughs) in La Jolla. But Steve also knows that I've been doing a lot of personal research on this topic to get ready. About three months ago, my wife sent me a text message during the middle of the day as I'm doing a little Zoom meeting in my office at home, and she says, we've got a leak in all caps. And it turns out that a little leak is actually a big leak. And calling insurance and going down that whole path, our entire house has been demoed, all of it. And we don't live there for now. And along the way, (laughs) as we worked with our insurance company, they, and it's just all a surprise to us. They said, you're going to have to move out. I'm like, you're, you're kidding. For a little bit of water leak and the flooring, and it's kind of one thing turns into another, and it's now all the flooring, all the cabinets, and both bathrooms, and it's basically, you know, an entire demolition. And I said, where, where are we going to go? And they said, we'll put you up in a, in a hotel. And I said, well, we, got, we have three kids all at, at home during school and Zoom, and, and I'm working from home. That's, that's going to be a, a lot of hotel rooms. And they said, okay, well, then we'll find a house for you that you can rent. So they uh, kind of put us through the service with Airbnb. And, and it turns out, because there's a lot of people right now in, in, in the world of COVID who've actually moved to San Diego temporarily because they can work anywhere and do school with their kids anywhere. There's hardly any houses for rent in the entire county. And there's one house that they found us. And it turns out to be in Rancho Santa Fe. <laughs> so we, for the last, now it's almost six weeks, and with no end in sight, probably another six to eight weeks, we're living in this gigantic, uh, we call it the mansion, uh, three, four acres. We have an orange grove. We have a pool, hot tub. There's a sauna inside of our house. I take walks to this lovely neighborhood like we belong there. And it's been this like, a completely different experience from living in a house that for two months before we moved out, had no kitchen, no bathroom, like we were camping in our own house, to this luxurious where my wife and I sit and we watch the sunset every night and watch the hot air balloons. We are living wealth. It's going to be really, really, really hard to let go of this wealth experience that we've had. And I think that's the same thing we're going to talk about right now. We're looking at a passage that's probably familiar to you, and it comes from, uh, it's actually in three out of the four gospel stories, and the passage is kind of in shorthand known as the rich young ruler passage. We know about this guy that approaches Jesus, that he, from the gospel of Luke, and I'm going to read from Matthew, uh, is not only has a lot of possessions, but also comes from kind of a well-to-do family. And he comes to Jesus and asks him this question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And behind that question is a question, as Jesus knows. Behind that question is a broader question that I think actually you and I ask the same thing. Because when we're growing up, we're we're given the opportunity to learn from the people around us for how we're supposed to live this life well. What's the thing that we're supposed to do? How do we organize our lives? What do we build our lives on? There's an author uh, who died years ago named Father Thomas Keating, and he helped us understand that there are generally three different versions of life that we built. He called them programs for happiness. He said there's three different programs that were handed down, and it's generally not a very overt, explicit thing, but it's something that we catch and learn implicitly as we go through our developmental years. One version of that program is that life is all about, the good life is all about having power and control. This is a a version of life that if, if you can be in charge, if you can organize everything, if you can control things and have them in the correct order, the way you want them to be, and if you can get that kind of life, you can manage your lawn, you can manage your home, you can manage your career, you can manage your finances, you can manage all of it, then it's going to go well. Those of us who have bought into that program understand that this is our program when it's under threat. (laughs) When there's some danger to our program, it really throws us for a loop. And so maybe you, if this is your program, power and control, maybe you struggle when other people tell you what to do, like a governor or mass. Maybe uh, you've got someone that you married or uh, gave birth to that infringes upon your power and your control and it's really difficult for you. It's, it's more difficult for you than for other people. That's one version. The other version, the other program for happiness that Thomas Keating said was safety and security. We got this definition, those of us who have this, got this idea that life is well lived when we can feel safe and be secure. And we know that this is our thing, that this is our program when that comes under threat. When you look at, a, a, let's say, a, a bank account, and it's dipped down because of the stock market switch. When we hear rumblings at our company about impending layoffs, when we hear about somebody close to us who got exposed to a virus, and us more than others, if this is your program, it really throws us for a loop. It causes huge spikes of anxiety, and we almost come unglued. The third program Thomas Keating called Esteem and Affection It's this idea that life will be well-lived if you have a good standing, if you have a positive reputation, if you could get those people to really think highly of you. You know this is your thing, and I think this is my thing, if I'm honest. When it's under threat, when you sense that somebody is upset with you, when you just have a feeling that there's unresolved conflict, or when someone quite literally tries to come to you with a problem, and this kind of keeps you up at night, What do they think about me? Did I say the wrong thing? Each of us have been handed off a program to manage our lives. And that's really what's underneath this guy's question as he comes to Jesus. Now, he lives in a time, and and this story comes from a place in a cultural spot where asking this kind of question was really a normal question. Imagine a world before Netflix or the news or other entertainment. So sitting around and talking about big, lofty things like this was normal. Not only that, but to be Jewish and to try to understand what does it mean for us to live life well when there's Roman occupation and there's a bunch of conflict and there's different versions for someone to try to wrestle with what is the right path, what is the right program 
would have been very normal. So here's the question he asked Jesus, and Jesus, as he always does, responds to this guy's question with his own. Here's Jesus' response. Why ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. So if you want to do life well, do what God told you to do. That's Jesus' very subtle answer, but we know that's not the end of the story. And the man asks, well, which ones? We know the, the, the Ten Commandments. Jesus actually responds, says, well, don't murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know the kind of the, 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 the hallmark commandments. But beyond that question, in the time that this story happens, there weren't just the Ten Commandments. There, in fact, were hundreds of things to do and to avoid and to not do. Hundreds of unique and explicit and minute little commands and rules and regulations that if you wanted to live life well, if you wanted to please God, if you wanted to have inner peace, you would do these things. And so this man would ask, you know, asking the question, well, which ones? It wasn't just a throwaway question. He's really trying to understand from Jesus's perspective, which ones am I supposed, supposed to emphasize? Because behind this question for this man is a sense of anxiety, a sense of I want to do this life well. Isn't that how is that how you and I feel too? I want to do this life well. I want to know that the path that I'm on is the path that's not only pleasing to God, but it's going to give me the most fulfillment. It's going to matter the most. Well, here's how the guy responds. I've obeyed all these commands, the young man replied. So what else must I do? <laughs> I've done it all. And here's Jesus' response. If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus goes very to, to, very to the heart of this man's program. He says, if you want to do this life well, let me, let's put under threat, let's put on the table the very thing that you've been working on so far. Your program has been some version of power and control, safety and security, wrapped up in your reputation. Let's just put that on the table, Jesus responds, and let's deal with that. Because Jesus knows the external question, the big question is not the real question in our hearts. This man is wondering, and he's trying to wrestle with, how do I do this well? And so Jesus exposes that, puts it under threat. Let's talk about that. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. The guy literally walks away. And I don't know, we don't know, does this man, when he hears Jesus' responses, you say, ah, this guy, Jesus, he doesn't get it. Or does he feel like the, the mirror has confronted him and it just is a, a deep sense of sadness and sorrow that I'm, I'm trapped in this. I can't, I can't even listen to this. Or maybe he's embarrassed that he even asked the question in the first place. We don't know. All we know is he walked away. And Jesus is prompted to then turn to his disciples and say this. He says, I tell you the truth. It's really, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, this is how the story goes, it says the disciples were astounded and they asked the question, then who in the world can be saved? Back to Jesus. What are you, kind of like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Because in their understanding, the, the world that they were raised in and, and, and brought up in, if you had wealth, if you had status, if you had control, that meant, that meant blessing from God. That meant you were on the good path. That was actually signs and evidence that you were doing life well. This was God saying, I'm pleased with you. 
And now Jesus is turning that upside down and saying, no, you got to give that up. So these guys are like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Then who can be saved if it's hard for someone who's wealthy and has power and control and status? And here's what Jesus says. He looks at them intently and says, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. How do we wrestle with this? Because wealth, we know this. You've been to church before or listened to messages like this before. What do we do with this confrontation for wealth? Because if I'm honest, what I'm trying to drive my life towards is safety and security, power and control, esteem and affection. By and large, I run those programs day in and day out. This is the opportunity. This is what I think we turn to the scriptures for together in community to serve as a mirror back to our lives, to reflect on our lives. Back in uh, March, I think the world was shutting down March 13th, March 14th. Our kids were sent home from school. My entire livelihood, my entire business has been inside public schools, face-to-face public schools. On March 17th, I got four emails that let me know that every single dollar that I was counting on in terms of contracts and programs for the next seven months was gone. Not going to happen. So in a day, I remember going to dinner, and I tell my wife, huh, I got no money coming in for the next seven months, like nothing. And we've been similar situations before. I used to raise support and work as a missionary to local college campuses. We've been in, we've been in sticky situations before financially. I don't know where this is going to come from. But I have to tell you, what I responded in that moment was with calm. And the program I turned on was, I'm going to control this. And the next day I woke up and I've never been more driven in my entire life. I worked nonstop. I don't know if I took a day really to rest until a couple months ago. Every single morning, just drive, drive, looking for opportunities, creating new things, just driving. And I was really, I frankly, at that moment, proud of myself. I was proud of my entrepreneurial spirit. I was looking at other friends who were just kind of uh, uh, just uh, feeling overwhelmed and, and wilting and, and not doing much. And I'm thinking, gosh, like, hurry up. Let's keep running. Let's keep going. Let's run harder and faster. And yet, at that same time, I was seeing and continue to see for years and years uh, a mentor of mine, a spiritual director named Cheryl Fleischer. And Cheryl would ask me about once a month at the end of me sharing all the things I'm doing and how I'm responding and how I'm fixing this and solving this. She would ask me this question, Scott, what are but what are you drawn to? And I would give her some answers, some like we all do when someone asks us a, a challenging question like that. Some answer, oh, I'm drawn to this and I'm drawn to that. I'm dr- drawn to this opportunity. But that stuck with me. That question, what are you drawn to? And I started to wonder like, okay, drawn versus driven. What's the difference there? Because I understand driven, but I, I'm not sure if I understand drawn. I understand to some level Uh, say a prayer, have a Bible verse, and get back to driving. (laughs) But what if the invitation was actually something else? Around May, I realized if there were a time to fail in business, I'd actually be then. And and there would be no no shame, there would be no failure if I shared with anybody in my life, said, hey, yeah, we just didn't make it. Our work was in public schools, all public schools shut down. Everyone that I knew would actually look at me and say, wow, well, of course, 
I knew that that was actually an, the, the, the best time to experiment with this other program that Jesus was talking about, to lay something down and try to pick something up. And what I started to pick up was that question, what am I feeling drawn to? Huh. What am I drawn to? And every time I'd battle, what well, doesn't really matter what I'm drawn to because I got to pay the bills. I got to take care of my kids. I got to respond to my business partners. I have to, but I kept trying to experiment with that. But what if I were to just be drawn today and lean in to what God's inviting me to and pay attention to my desires, pay attention to opportunities. And I started to notice there was a difference. Being driven actually meant anxiety. Driven means that I'm in charge. Driven means I'm in control. Driven means it's up to me. Driven actually means exhausting, tiring. And being drawn to actually feels spacious and large and energizing. And what if? And I started to look at the day and try to manage my day in that grid. Like, what am I drawn to today? And sometimes it wasn't to the thing that I'm supposed to be driving towards. It was something else. It was taking a walk with the kid. It was spending time doing something for our family and our house. It was responding to a friend and started to get these other opportunities that normally I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm driving in this direction. That, that, uh, I'll, I'll let you know who else can do that. But I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm, if I were free, if I was drawn, if I was listening to the Spirit, if I was paying attention to the flow of what God is up to, I think I'd say yes to that. And I think, that's, I think that's the invitation for you and I. What does it look like to not drive our lives with a program, but to be drawn into the kind of life with Jesus, which is what he's inviting and offering to this rich young man. It's the same stuff he invites us to. What does that look like? What does it look like, particularly on a week as we enter into a week of Thanksgiving and the holidays? Because even the act of gratitude is a act of surrender. It is, uh, it's a recognition that I'm not necessarily in charge of things, but I'm a receiver of things. I didn't manufacture or manage or make this happen. I, it, was a, it was a gift. This week, I think the invitation of Thanksgiving is to recognize and pay attention to the ways in which we're driving our own program or drawn into the life with God. That's it. And Peter, I love this, Peter, after Jesus says, hey, yeah, it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's actually a trap, and it's, it's, it's really hard for someone to be both driven and drawn at the same time. It just doesn't really work well. And he says, well, that's, you know, humanly speaking, it's impossible. God can do all things. And Peter says to him, and I th- it's almost like a whisper, like, hey, Jesus, hey, buddy, come on. Uh, we've given up everything to follow you. We gave up our programs of power and control and safety and security and trying to build a name for ourselves. We've been following you. What are you saying? And Jesus replies, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on these 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake, anyone who was drawn and paid attention to the drawing of the Spirit and let go of their programs and listened to the invitation from me, anyone like that will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. That is real life. 
But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. In other words, those who are trying to build a name for themselves now and have safety and security and power and control now, it's not going to matter. That's not real life. Real life is with me. Those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. That is the upside-down invitation that God gives us, that Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler to and is inviting you and I to. What does it mean for us to be drawn? That's my invitation for you as we look at the scriptures, as we pay attention to God's voice. This week, do a gratitude exercise. Literally, with a, a, a piece of paper and a pen, talk about three or four good things that have happened that have been like a gift to you in the past month or few months through this whole thing. And recognize as you sit there and look at that, how that represents the flow of God and God's goodness and love towards you. Not something you've managed or manufactured or control. And hear the words of God again. I love the way Henry Nouwen translates the story of Jesus being sent into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Henry Nouwen translates this in his teachings and writings. Also, um, he passed away a dead guy. Uh, He says, you are not what you do. You're not what you do. You are not what you have in your possessions. You are not what others think about you or say about you. That's not who you are. You are the beloved of God, beloved of God. And that is a real thing, a real reality, and it's really available and accessible to you and I. And it's an internal thing that happens when we turn to the flow of how God is drawing us and away from driving and managing our own lives. So that's our invitation. It's a subtle It's a subtle shift. It's confrontational, and it can change everything. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, that you give us that invitation. You give us the opportunity to go through life with you, drawn into a life with the Spirit, a Spirit that is real and alive and wise and good and for us. Help us to see that. Help us to have the courage to respond to it. Help us to see our program And to see it for what it is, a path towards shallowness, a path towards emptiness, a path to anxiety. And help us to see your path, an invitation to joy and love and grace and peace and more of you. So thank you that your eternal life starts now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and be grateful and respond to the flow of God drawing you into more and more of his presence.